This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we have been talking about open doors. Uh, There are all these opportunities that God opens in our lives. And uh, one of the things we've learned is that uh, the attitudes that we hold toward open doors, toward these opportunities, make all the difference in the world. Sometimes somebody's attitude really shows. I heard a story this week about a woman, um, an older woman, uh, elderly perhaps, and uh, when she came out of the bank, she realized that she had locked her keys in her car. And she was frantic, and, and uh, she, she, uh, her kids gave her a cell phone, and so she had that cell phone safely in the car. <laughs> And she was frantic, and she just thought, what am I going to do? And, and so she just, because she knew the Lord, she began to pray, God, please, please help me. I don't know what to do. And just about this time, a real roaring, loud motorcycle pulls up and parks almost just one spot ahead of her, and, and the guy gets off the motorcycle, and this guy's kind of scary looking. You know, he's uh, tattoos all over and kind of a big, scruffy beard. And as he walks back, he can see the distress on her face, and he says, Lady, you okay? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, I've been sitting here praying because I've locked my keys in my car, and and I don't know how to get in. You wouldn't happen to know how to do that, would you? (laughs) And he said, yes, ma'am, I can help you with that. And within a few moments, he had secured a little wire, and and he was fishing it down in 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 the door, and, uh, and she said, uh, she goes, this is amazing. Thank you so much. And click, the door popped right open. Oh, she says, you are such a good man. Thank you for your help. He says, no, ma'am, I'm not a good man. I actually just got out of prison three years for auto theft. <laughs> and she said, thank you, God, for sending me a professional. <laughs> yeah. Attitudes, attitudes are powerful things. And if there's one thing we've learned is that we can view a door as a barrier, as a, as a scary thing, or an exciting thing. We've begun to talk about the fact that God is a God of open doors. He opens doors all around us. Boundless opportunities to contribute to humanity in ways that are big or small, but ways that we could never have imagined. Ways that will make our lives count for eternity. Who wouldn't want to step through a door like that? Me. Sometimes I don't want to step through a door like that. The truth is, just because these things sound so wonderful, could we just be honest for a few minutes? Almost half the time when we see these opportunities, we don't get a thrill, we get a knot in our stomach. Now, perhaps some of you know the name Abraham Maslow. Um, Maslow was a psychologist, psychiatrist, a researcher, social researcher, and he wrote about the, the hierarchy of needs and those kinds of things. But, but Maslow also wrote about this tendency that we as people have to want to go through a, an open door, to wanting to take a new adventure, a new opportunity, and yet at the same time, something inside us pulls back, holds back. In fact, I pulled this quote from some of his writing. He says, It is an aversion of growth, a defense against calling. His word. 
If you deliberately plan to be less than you are capable of being, I warn you that you will be deeply unhappy for the rest of your life. You will be evading your own capacities, dodging your own possibilities. The title that he gave that complex is the Jonah Complex. We admire people that can bravely step through the door, Maslow said. And at the same time, we have kind of a mixed, we have mixed feelings about people who just kind of boldly go through those doors. I mean, we admire them. Well, that's great. And at the same time, we sort of, they make us uneasy, a little anxious. Have you ever had somebody say yes to something that you thought was scary? And as soon as they say yes, instead of being inspired to follow them, now you're a little irritated with them? Sometimes we get a little confused. Or maybe we get jealous. We're envious of their courage. Sometimes they make us feel inferior or clumsy. The truth is, every time the Lord opens a door or makes a door appear in our lives, there is a little tug of war that goes on. It's not just you. It happens to me too. All of us feel this tug of war, wanting to boldly go where no man has gone before, but we'd rather do it from the couch. <laughs> Preach it. So today and next week, we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at Jonah. Jonah is the patron saint of refused callings. He's not the only story in scripture, but boy, he stands out. In fact, as we look at this story, we're going to see our own evasions of God's calling mirrored right back to us. And the, the hope is that as we see it reflected in his story and we feel it resonate in our story, that we will begin to have a better understanding of the reasons why we resist. And having understood those reasons, perhaps by God's grace, we can learn to say yes instead. If you have a Bible this morning, turn it, turn, open it to the book of Jonah. Uh, and if you don't, we're going to project it up here as well. There are three points we're going to make today, and then another set of points we'll make next week. We're going to take the Lord's table when we're done today. And so we're going to have an opportunity before this service is over to think about those open doors that we have been resisting to have a chance to give a different answer, perhaps. There are a lot of reasons why we tend to resist open doors in our lives. Remember, open doors are invitations, divine invitations, to make our lives count with God's help for the sake of others. That's how we're defining these opportunities. And so the first thing we're going to notice in this story of Jonah is that sometimes fear can influence us to say no, to open doors. Let's start reading in Jonah 1. We read this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Jonah was a prophet He wasn't a priest. There were lots of priests in Israel. 
They were, they were offering prayers and taking sacrifices and those kind of things. Lots of priests. But usually in Israel, there was only one prophet at a time. Because that's about all you can take in your life, is one prophet at a time. <laughs> Prophets are troublemakers. Prophets are irritating. Prophets are reformers. Prophets are activists. They're saying what no one else is willing to say, calling us out, challenging us. That was Jonah's job. One day, the word of the Lord came to this prophet. Now, you know that we're kind of playing with a Dr. Seuss theme every once in a while. And uh, so I thought, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps if Dr. Seuss were to give us this part of the story, it would sound like this. Could you, would you, go to preach? Could you, would you, go to reach? The people of Assyria, for you fit my criteria. And Jonah says to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there if, I, if it float. I, I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like these peop- those people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. Wow. That's the story. Jonah gets this word, but he doesn't go. And I guess right away we have to stop and ask ourselves why, and that's going to be the whole purpose of the message today. But the first thing we have to remind ourselves of is who Assyria was. In the decades, even the century before Jonah's life, up until his, his contemporaries, Assyria was the great world power. And what they were known for, more than anything else, was cruelty. In fact, not just, they weren't just known for being cruel, they were known for being endlessly cruel. When they would conquer a people, they would often just send the entire population on a death march, walk them till they all die. They were brutal. They would chew up countries and spit them out. They practiced genocide as a state policy. They basically had vaporized the northern kingdom of Israel, just pretty much annihilated it. They were not nice people. Think of everything that you and I have felt in recent days about terrorism and those out there that are enemies and, and evil and bad and want to harm. These, the people we know are Boy Scouts compared to Assyria. With half the technological skill, they did 10 times as much suffering. And they, pr- they had pride. They were glad. They were proud to be getting better and better at making pe- people suffer. Now, a contemporary of Jonah, the prophet Nahum, also talked about Assyria just a little bit. And uh, he wrote this. In Nahum 3, he says, Now, often Nineveh, the, the capital, was known as the city of blood. And that's what he's referring to here. He says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. 
So we need to be fair to Jonah. Okay? Nahum, Nahum got to write that from a distance. Okay? Now God is wanting Jonah to go there in person and deliver this message. Can, can you imagine, like, look, God, look, that's not fair. Like, can't we just send him an email? It would be terrifying if today you felt God's nudging you to go to some closed country where Christians are executed on a regular basis. Would you have hesitation in your heart? Of course you would. And so we have to give Jonah a little bit of space. Offer him a little bit of understanding. Fear is a powerful motivator. We don't have to even put it into words. It can just sort of blossom in our, in our gut, and it can control our decisions. You see, Nineveh, for our purposes, is a place where God calls you to go where you don't want to go. Nineveh is trouble. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is fear. Perhaps you've not been called to Nineveh, but you have a place like this, even in your life now the idea of which gives you a knot in your stomach. And the truth is, sometimes God calls us to those places. In fact, as a pastor, I guess I would have to tell you that he eventually is going to call you to a place where you don't want to go. And it will probably be a place that you have feared for quite some time. So what is a person to do if they feel like God is calling them to a place that they are afraid of and they don't want to go. Well, here's one thought. Fear of a situation is never overcome by avoiding the situation. Now, you know, we're all, many of us, good passive aggressives, you know, some of us kind of a duchy background. We're really good at like, yup, yup, and doing no. But avoiding it never, ever addresses the fear. What will address fear? The only real antidote to fear that I know that is represented in the scriptures is the presence of God. Sometimes we wait for God to arrive. More often than not, we, we're slow to realize he was already there. But as soon as we become aware again that he is present, fear begins to loosen its grip. If only we could remember that he's there. Let's read on. Jonah chapter 1 verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, there's so much we could say. There's a cute little song kids sing about, uh, but uh, Jonah thought he'd hop a ship and go the other way. You know, never run away from God. And I won't sing it for you anymore. But... Here's one thought. Oh, thank you. Very, uh, they're, they're clapping because I stopped. But here's a thought. Something that, that I hadn't noticed until recently, it says that Jonah paid the fare. 
Now, this is a long voyage. This is not like a, like a, a skiff going across the bay. This is a long sea voyage. And this was a time when actually money wasn't used that often. Most commerce was done through barter. You'd swap out goods. So it was already kind of unique for someone to dig in a purse or a pocket and bring out this thing called money. But what's really impressive is that Jonah could pay for the whole thing cash. There you go. Now, perhaps his urgency helped. If, if you're like me, I have trouble finding money for stuff unless it's urgent. And then I can find the money for stuff. This was urgent. But what's interesting is that Jonah was able to plop down whatever money was, whatever it cost to take this trip. Jonah had options. He had mobility. He had flexibility. He had margin in his life. He could plop down the money. See, sometimes one of the things that makes us hesitate to go through open doors are options. We all think that having options is a good thing, and yet, I'm going to guess that for most of you like me, it's options that paralyze you about half the time. One or two or three choices, no problem. 16 options, I'm beginning to feel some anxiety. 32 possibilities, and I just shut down and I don't do anything. Sometimes options will stop us. They provoke us to say no to going through the open door. See, one of the dangerous things about money is that having money makes it easier for us to think that we can run away from God because we have options. Reading recently about this tendency in our country for folks to, even folks who really like going to church, they're believers, but overall, people are going to church less often. Used to go every week, and now they go once every three weeks or once every five weeks. And one of the reasons that is listed is because of affluence. Suddenly, you have other options. We can, we can afford to go on a few more trips. We can, we can afford to, to get a cabin or a, or a four-wheeler or a whatever. And, and, and something that should be a blessing can sometimes work against what God's trying to say in our lives. So sometimes money works against us. Um, I heard a saying this week about Jonah in this setting. It said, sometimes a prophet and profit don't go well together. The more options you have, the less likely you are to make a decision quickly. And here's this other thought. Whenever we do have the opportunity to step through an open door, a door that God has opened for the sake of others, and we choose not to, there is this tendency to do something else instead. And if we were to learn from the story of Jonah, perhaps that thing that we choose instead is the same as a ship to Tarshish. I mean, it's not literally a ship, perhaps, in your life. It's not literally headed to Tarshish. Oh, but you grab a different vehicle, and you're going the other direction. We keep ourselves busy. We keep ourselves laughing. We keep ourselves happy because I am not doing what God has been putting on my heart. It's interesting. You start to learn a little bit about Tarshish. And this term, a ship to Tarshish. Actually, in, in biblical literature and in ancient literature, a ship to Tarshish 
took on kind of a symbolic meaning. It was a symbol of wealth and, and self-sufficiency in the ancient world. Now, if you'd like to look these things up, I'll, I'll give you some references. You ready? Isaiah 2, verse 12, and verses 16 and 17. Or Ezekiel 27, verse 25 and 33 through 34. You can look that up on your own, where it talks about a ship from Tarshish being this symbol of wealth and self-sufficiency. You know, is it really hard for us to imagine that there was once a group of humans who were so deluded that they thought that technology and wealth and clever, a clever economic system could make them secure? <laughs> See, Jonah basically ran to Wall Street. Jonah ran to Madison Avenue. Jonah ran to Silicon Valley. He went where he could have options and affluence and what he thought was secure. Jonah is running towards something because he thinks it's going to be safer for him. But the truth of the matter is, the only place that is safe for a child of God is right in the middle of God's revealed will even if that is a place like Nineveh, which seems scary. One last thought. Sometimes blindness can lead us, can prompt us to say no to an open door. We're going to read on. Verse 4, we read this. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship was threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down, and he fell asleep. There's so much we could talk about. First of all, if you find it hard to, to believe that somebody could fall asleep in a storm like that, you have never been on a ship at sea. Because if you've ever been, like, like my dad used to love to go drift boat fishing. It's the worst kind of fishing in the world because you go out into the ocean where there's 10 to 15 foot waves and then they cut the engine and you're just floating. <sighs> okay, Every, almost everybody gets green at the gills. And what, one of the most common ways to deal with that when you're feeling seasick, you just try to fall asleep. You hunker down and go to sleep. So it's no surprise that he's really asleep down there, but we all know that that represents more than just dealing with seasickness. It's interesting to me that we've got professional sailors here. These guys do this for a living. The professionals are scared to death. Now, in this time, uh, sea voyages took a long time. I mean, a, a professional lifetime sailor may have only taken five or six or seven trips like this in his entire lifetime. They took months and months and months and the truth was that when you went on a trip like this, you loaded that ship. And it was kind of like your one shot. This is my chance to make it big or end up with nothing. They took a risk, like a year's worth of a risk. Can you imagine going someplace for a year doing work and waiting till the end of that year to see what the paycheck looked like? That's the kind of investment risk that these sailors made, which is what makes it so stunning that they are so afraid they're throwing their future over the side. 
They're chucking all of their hopes and dreams over the side. The thinking is, I hate to throw this over, but if I die here, there is going to be no other option for me. That's desperation, folks. They are desperate. It's interesting that the scripture says that each one was praying to his own God. Every tribe, every town, every ethnic group, everybody had their own little assortment of gods. And they were all praying to them. By the way, we're not the ones who invented multiculturalism. It's been around forever. They're all praying. You see, when the seas are calm in your life, you can pray to any God you want. But when storms come, you start hoping that one of those gods is actually a God. How many of you would say that it was one of those desperate storms that made you listen to God when nothing else did? All of us. Which is why sometimes when someone comes and says, Pastor, this is such a terrible storm. Why would God do this? And I have to bite my lip and go, I think I know exactly why he would do this. Because he loves you. Every time God's done this in my life, it's for a purpose. Wow. So all of these men are praying more fervently than they ever have before. They are crying out to whatever God will listen. Where is God's prophet during this time of spiritual revival? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Totally unaware of the revival that's about to happen up top. So, verse 6, the, the captain goes down and finds him, and he says, what is wrong with you? Get up! Call on your God! Maybe he will take notice of us so that we do not perish. Do you catch the irony here? you got a pagan ship captain telling the prophet of God that he should be praying. The pagan is doing what prophets do, call people to prayer. And the prophet is doing what pagans usually do, which is sleep through prayer time. <laughs> Whenever you see something like that in the scriptures, completely reversed, you know, little, your radar should be up, bells should go off. God's going to do something. We're going to keep reading. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Now, first of all, even after the captain talked to him, Jonah didn't give any other information. But finally, when these sailors, right, the lots fall to him, and they're all looking at him saying, okay, what is the story? By the way, God loves to use things like that to get, get the, the whole issue pointed back to you. He uses circumstances. Sometimes it's almost comical. So they say to him, tell us, who is responsible for all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? What's the deal? Why is this happening? What have you done to us? And finally, Jonah comes clean. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He made this. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? Now, something is about to happen here 
but we would miss it if, if we don't kind of get a little biblical literacy lesson. There are different names for God. Uh, one Hebrew name would, or word would be Elohim. Just the idea of a deity. It's applied to God in the Bible, but it would be applied to other deities as well. Another word would be Adonai. This idea of you're the Lord, you're the boss, you're in charge here. And then there is the name that God gave for himself. He said, I am Yahweh. A name that was so sacred, scribes wouldn't write it out. They would use a special secret, kind of abbreviation. Every time in your Bible, when the word Yahweh is being used, it will use all capital letters for the word Lord even if it's small caps. And you will notice probably in your copy of the scriptures or on here that it's, there are these capital letters, not, not here, but in your Bible. So he says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm the Lord of the God of heaven who made the dry land. And they were terrified. What have you done? And the sea was getting rougher, it says, rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And at this point, Jonah is ready to just accept responsibility. This is my fault. This is my fault. I have messed up. I have ruined this whole thing. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault. This great storm has come upon you. Jonah has failed miserably. And now he's willing to just, okay, my life is over. I'm ready to die. And now the surprises begin. Verse 13, instead, what kind of an idea do you get about pagan sailors? Nice guys? Sweet, understanding, sensitive types? <laughs> and yet it says, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. These guys actually tried. They tried to save his life. They don't want to chuck him in. It's amazing to me. And here's where something, the whole game changes. Then they cried out to the Lord. And the manuscript tells us that now they're using a different name for God. They're using the name of Jonah's God, Yahweh. Now they cried out to the Lord. Wait, you said he's the one? What's his name? And they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking, what, in the, in the storm? No, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, you have done as you have pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. That's something that none of those sailors had ever seen happen ever in their professional lives. And the result was, at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to the Lord. You see, the sailors had been praying to their gods, and they told Jonah to pray to his God, but once they hear about the God, and they see what he can do, they begin to come to know about Yahweh, 
come to know about the God of Israel. And it almost seems like part of what helps them listening, helps them understanding, is the fact that Jonah is coming as a failure. He's not coming as a triumphant, victorious prophet. He's a knucklehead. He's a screw-up. They understand. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. You're here because you didn't do what your God said. And still, they listen. Jonah had been a prophet all these years. This is probably going to be the greatest Gentile conversion he has ever seen. And it happens because of his failure. Let me tell you what this preaches to me. You see, I would like for God to bless my success. And I would like for God, I would like it to be true that that any success is due to my good work, the things that I do well. But the truth of the matter is, my performance, your performance, does not necessarily have any impact on the effect that actually comes out. What what it depends on is what God is going to do. When you are tempted to think that your weakness, your frailty, your past, makes you unusable for God's purposes. When you think that you will be the, the cause of the failure, we need to remember what Jonah saw. The greatest Gentile conversion he's ever seen comes because of his failure. God loves Nineveh and tries to send Jonah to bring the gospel to them. He refuses. And by his refusal, now Tarshish will hear the gospel as well. Because when these sailors get home, they are going to tell this story over and over and over again. You see, the book of Jonah is a story. It's not a it's not human plan. This is an open door, but we are not the openers. God clearly is. So reflect on this as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. In fact, I'm I'm going to just talk to myself. You can apply it as you see fit. How many open doors are around me? How many opportunities are around me that I don't see? Someone feels alone. I could comfort them. Somebody waits to be inspired or encouraged. Someone is aching with rejection. Somebody is racked with guilt. And they are just waiting. Waiting for you and I to stop hiding. Hiding from our own failures. Hiding from the mess that we've already made. You don't understand. I make messes. God doesn't want to work with me. He can't use me. I will mess things up. You don't know God. See, all all sometimes people are waiting for is for us to stop hiding, to come back up on deck and notice that they're there. 
So what door is waiting in your life right now? It's just waiting there. It's been calling on you, and you have hesitated to step through because you're afraid or because you just haven't really stopped to notice the needs. Because, you see, I'm a mess up. I failed. Is God able to use failed prophets? He does it every day. Let's pray. As we close today and we begin to turn our attention towards the Lord's table. Coming to communion is an opportunity for us to fellowship with the Lord. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus as your personal Savior, it's kind of hard to know how to have a time of communion with Him. See, it's easy for us to believe that there's a barrier the scriptures tell us there's a barrier between us and God, this barrier of, barrier of sin. But when Jesus died, he died to make the payment for our sin. He gave his life for us so that we might know life. And he offers that life freely as a gift. It's received by faith. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I ask you, what would stop you from trusting him today? Jesus, you know me, you know I'm a mess, you know I've failed. But if, if you died for my sin and you're offering eternal life just because you love me, then I will accept the gift. I want you to be my Savior. But for the rest of us, if Jesus were at this table and the call came out, come on in, have a seat, would, would we be tempted to, to stay outside, slow to come in because we're afraid, afraid to face him because of the failures, afraid to face him because of the things that we've said, the, the things that we've done, the things that we haven't done. You don't understand, Lord, you don't want me at your table. Your failures, my failures, seem big to us. They are no obstacle to him. But what will stop us from doing what he wants is when we don't come to him in the first place. As he opens these doors, he says, Come, I will go with you. So what's stopping you from responding to him today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you modeled all this. You left the Father. You took on flesh. You lived among us. And then you went to the cross. You suffered anguish. You were separated from your Father. You bore the sins of the world. And, and you died. But in that sacrifice, in your willingness to step through into that scary place, the Father breathes life and light and hope. 
And so just as you rose three days later, conquering death and giving your followers a mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, you sent your spirit to empower and fill us. There is such hope. There is no place that is too scary. But we ask that you would open our eyes to it. You came and sought us when we were your enemies. Forgive us for not showing the same kind of care for those around us who need you. And so we ask in these moments that your spirit would speak to us that you would challenge us and correct us, that we would respond with repentance and humility, that we would reestablish that you are the guide for our lives and that we will respond in obedience. Make this so. According to your will, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask for those who are going to help serve these elements to come forward now. Again, if you're a guest and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to let you know that uh, it is perfectly okay. It's not rude at all. You can be seated. Not rude at all to let these elements pass. We don't want you to perform. There's nothing magical about these elements. You don't have to pretend. You don't offend us. You see, if you don't know Jesus, it makes no sense to try to celebrate what his death meant. But for those of us who, have, who know him, we realize that this bread represents the body that was broken and the cup, his blood which was shed. And that in these, oh, not these, but in his body and blood, we find life through faith. He wanted this to be a time of vivid, intimate communion. Let's ask him to do that. Let's pray. So now, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, we go again to that table, that table to which you instructed us to go. And we ask that as we take these elements, we would hear again your words, sense again your purpose, that we would find in your presence forgiveness and grace and hope. For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.